So we'll be starting in Acts, picking up back up in Acts chapter 2. And we'll jump in at about verse 22 here in a minute. So as we continue our discussion concerning Peter's sermon, uh, I feel compelled to talk about a couple of words. Um, one word is kerygma, K-E-R-Y-G-M-A. Second word is didache, D-I-D-A-C-H-E. These are terms used to explain teaching, and I'm no professor here, so, so bear with me as I go through this, but the kerygma is basically a term used when speaking of the essential message preached by the apostles in the early church. The term always pointed out Old Testament prophecy, prophecy that had been fulfilled in the person and the work of Christ particularly. And what Peter did with the application of Prophet Joel here is an example of what a kerygma can look like. As you go through and you find some of these, they'll look a little different here and there, but they'll generally contain all of, all of those things. Um, when this term is used, it usually contains a brief recap of portions of Jesus' life. We're talking about kerygma here. He'll talk about his life, his ministry, which would include such things as his being the seed of David, um, the miracles that he performed, the fulfillment of the law in, in his perfect life, and of course it would talk about things like his death, the resurrection, uh, the ascension, the crucifixion. And Webster's Dictionary, and I tend to go there when I'm just looking for definitions, it defines the term as a proclamation or a herald. And a herald is a common word that we've all heard, but a herald was someone who ran through the streets announcing things to the community. A herald was someone who uh, would warn people or spread the news of whatever. <clears throat> it also talked about praising loudly and in one of the you know you'll have four or five different definitions the last one in there in Webster's recognized this term as a preaching of the gospel so I, I found that to be a good thing sometimes I'm surprised to find Christianese in the dictionary sometimes they have those definitions set aside and it'll say REL for religion when you look it up. But that's a kerygma. That's what a kerygma is. And then we have this term didache. D-I-D-A-C-H-E. And this term refers to the teaching that will follow the preaching of the gospel. The, the didache is something that is taught when people respond positively to the call of salvation and they have received salvation and they come back to church, the teaching they should be getting falls into that didache realm. It's a regular instruction concerning things of the scripture and I'll pause there and say at least it should be. And depending on the church you attend today, there's a good likelihood that you may receive something other than a didache type teaching. 
It's um, sound instruction. And the lack of needed instruction will certainly be the case in most of your quasi-mega churches. And in these, you'll find that the music carries far more importance than the teaching of the word. But it also be found in some of your more traditional churches, where it's legalism. And while antinomianism and legalism are opposed, they end up in the same spot quite often. You're doing something other than the word. So the Didache is a teaching. Uh, the instruction tonight could be considered to be in the Didache realm. I'm looking at this congregation and I can't see your heart, but I have no doubt about the salvation of anyone in here. I know all of you personally to at least some degree. So what we're doing tonight is we're trying to teach deeper things of the word, understand what the word is saying, and that's what the Didache is about. Now, I will say this, you know, the effort is to edify you. But at the end of our services here at Shepherd's Rock, we don't do a formal altar call where we raise our hands and we stand up and put your right foot out and come down the altar and pray a 15-word prayer. We don't go through all that. But we do take an opportunity at the end of the service to announce for the audience, for the congregation, to give consideration to their union with Christ. That's what is done throughout the Bible. You think about Joshua when he called unto the people and said, Choose you this day. <coughs> That's what we do. That's what this is about. So, as we, as we go through this, um, understand that. I'm not saying this is a Didache, but it kind of fits that definition. Webster's defines a Didache as teachings of the twelve apostles, an anonymous Christian treatise of the early centuries. And I found it quite amusing in a way that even Webster's recognizes the decline of the teachings in the church over the years. In their opinion, the Didache does not exist anymore in a formal happening format hasn't happened in centuries. And it's at this point in the book of Acts we, we have discussed the day of Pentecost at length. And I'll go through and just hit a few bullets. You know, we've seen the Holy Spirit poured out. We've seen the use of the and the gift of tongues and languages. The listeners have been astonished by this. Peter begins to explain to the listeners that what they are witnessing is a fulfillment of prophetic verses from the book of Joel. Peter addressed these people in the crowd on common ground. Peter, the believers with him, and the people in the crowd all have endorsed the Old Testament. If they didn't, they likely wouldn't be there on the day of a festival. So Peter is starting on the Old Testament. On top of that, the New Testament hasn't been written at this point. And I don't know if you ever really stopped and thought about it, but all the teachings that the apostles do, starting in the book of Acts, had to come from the Old Testament. 
They were preaching Christ from the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't in existence at that time. Working from common ground to bridge gaps of differences between people who may have opposing beliefs or differences of opinion is commonly used today in the practice of apologetics. Jeff Durbin does it regularly, tries to find common ground, even with people that he's totally in disagreement with. Find some common ground to start that conversation. So now Peter begins to preach the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, and he wants the people to know that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a symbol that the messianic age has arrived, that it's here. And this messianic age is often referred to in the scriptures as the last days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 plus years. There may be 2,000 more. There may not be two, but there may be 2,000 more. And we need to live our lives as though we're going to live a full life. With 72 years as indicated in scriptures, and I'm assuming that's an average number. Some people live to be 100. Some don't make it to 50. But we need to assume and live our lives as though we're going to live a full life. So if you will, at this point, let's turn over to Acts chapter 2. And uh, I'm really going to un- try to unpack these verses tonight. And if you will, stand in honor of God's inerrant word. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. So Peter starts out, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This is your word, Father. This is your revelation to us. And we thank you for your word. Please use it to enrich our lives in you. Help us, Lord, to understand and apply your teaching to our lives. We desire the Holy Spirit to take the service over and lead us through your inerrant word. Help us to be a shining light. Help us not to put our candle under a bushel, Lord. We love you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's children said... So there's a lot in three verses here. I don't know how many sermons or teachings you could do out of these three verses. There's so much here. I'm sure it's in the hundreds. Because as you go through this, you you can't help but think to yourself, man, you could go down this path, and you're thinking, no, I've got to stay with the verses. And you could go down that path, and we could talk about There's a lot here. But my effort tonight is going to be to unpack these verses, and basically let's walk through them a phrase or a word at a time. So in verse 22, Peter's making a declaration here that starts out with men of Israel. 
Men of Israel need to listen to him, is his declaration. Now, he uses this verbiage, men of Israel, intentionally. This verbiage reminds the audience of the covenant of God made with Israel. This is a personal greeting Peter uses to introduce his, to introduce his teaching concerning Jesus the Nazarene. It's kind of a, a personal name when you say that. Men of Israel, we're under God's covenant. We're the... So Jesus the Nazarene was a name that the crowd obviously knew and probably felt like they knew too well. There's no mistake in who Peter's speaking about here. When he uses this name, the crowd knows. And we find this name used in the Gospels in Matthew 21, verse 11. He's referred to by this name in Luke 24, verse 19. And this is a name that was posted, it was nailed to the cross above his head. Jesus the Nazarene in John 19, 19. And we've already discussed the holy irony and the apostles all coming from Galilee and how that region was known to be a lower class of citizens and we won't beat that to death again. But now Peter is reminding the listeners that not only are we from Galilee, so was he. So was Christ. Because as we discussed previously, Nazareth is a city in Galilee. Peter goes on to describe Jesus as a man attested to the listeners by God. And um, when I'm reading through that, I'm thinking, okay, I have no idea what attested means. So I'm having to go look up this word. It's not commonly used today. The word approved takes its place in the King James Version of the Bible, and I think that's one of the few places that I've ever found where the King James Bible is more easily understood than some of the later translations. But it's there, and the word approved is used. Webster states that attested means to bear witness to, to certify by a signature or an oath, to serve as proof of or to simply to testify of. So Peter's Peter's teaching here is that Jesus, the Messiah, had God's stamp of approval. That's what attested means. And this was recognized during the life of Christ by some people. And I find the story of Nicodemus very interesting. In in John chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, we have this story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus and and it reads now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews Nicodemus isn't just any ordinary Jewish person who might have decided to stop by and see Jesus that evening He's he's one of the rulers of the Jews he's one of the Pharisees and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him Rabbi We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's what Nicodemus said. He recognized Christ as being from God. Now, this was very early in Jesus' ministry, if the chronology is right. In fact, I had a hard time finding a miracle that he did before Nicodemus visited him. The turning the water into wine was before that. So obviously, other things had happened that weren't recorded. Or maybe it just took that one event. 
But Nicodemus was able to recognize that he was from God, and I personally believe, if nothing else, from the teaching that he had. Nicodemus saw who he was, at least to the point of knowing this man is sent from above. So we should understand that this word attested describes Jesus as one who was sent out by God and who speaks on behalf of God. Now I'm going to move on here. Peter's next phrase instructs the listeners that Jesus performed miracles, wonders, and signs. However, Peter does boldly tell the audience that God worked these miracles through Jesus. And I'll get to that in a few minutes. For now, MacArthur defines these terms of what does a miracle mean. He says the word miracles are used to describe the powerful supernatural character of the works being performed. He describes the word wonders, uh, stating that this is used to describe the marveling of the onlookers that take place in their minds. So I thought marveling. Okay. Well, marvels, this word is used to describe the reaction of the witnesses to the miracles, wonders, and signs, and that marveling in and of itself has no intrinsic value of itself except when the marveling causes one to consider the source of the miracles, the source of the wonders, the source of the signs. In this case, one could be led to salvation, and then it has eternal, unmeasurable worth. And then the last one is signs. Signs are used to give the intent of the miracle. The signs point to spiritual truths or even God himself. So Peter's using the words miracles, wonders, and signs to describe how God attested that Jesus is the Messiah. All these things he did, and you pick your miracle. It should be evidence that he was the Messiah. His miracles alone should have been proof enough for the Jews to recognize him as the Messiah. He was not just a man pretending to be the Messiah. Jesus, as a man, is the Messiah. He's the one they've waited on for thousands of years. And it boggles my mind that they waited on him for thousands of years. And rather than embracing him and accepting him, they rejected him and murdered him. So now we must recognize that there is an immediate need that Jesus compassionately did in all these miracles. And that immediate need, you have this guy that's blind here and he heals him. There's an immediate need there. There's someone who's deaf and he hears them. Maybe it's lame. Maybe it's leprosy. Maybe he raises them from the dead. So, so there's an immediate need in all these. But beyond that local and immediate need of compassion, there was a far deeper significance here. The significance was something that John Locke referred to as the credit of the proposer. The claims that Jesus Christ made to being the Son of God were verified, authenticated, and demonstrated to be genuine miracles that God performed through Jesus Christ. Therefore, we need to recognize that the primary point of a miracle is God's giving his sign of approval, his attestation that this one is speaking the truth. He's speaking God's truth. And we see this through these miracles performed in the Old Testament as well. You think about Elijah and Elisha. And we're going to see this as we 
go further through the book of Acts, miracles that the apostles do. And the fact that he has exclaimed, he proclaimed clearly to the listeners that these miracles were performed by God through him, Peter's going to repeat this over and over and over again in the book of Acts. That God performed the miracles through Christ. In this chapter alone, we're going to see it again in verse 23, 24, 32, 33, 36, and I stop there. That message he wanted people to understand. That it wasn't just Jesus doing something, it was God working through him doing this. Now Peter makes this more personal when he states that these works were done in their midst and that they know these works. Peter simply stating that they cannot deny these miracles. There's no denying it. These people had either witnessed the miracles for themselves or they had heard the first-hand account of witnesses that they likely knew that had seen them. And I'm sure the rumors were rampant in the streets at that time in Jerusalem of everything that Christ had done, his crucifixion. They said he raised from the dead, nay, ascended to heaven. I can't imagine what the streets sounded like. It had to be a buzz with what just happened. Everyone in the crowd knew exactly who Jesus the Nazarene was and had either witnessed the signs or likely heard them. And certainly it is at this point in Peter's message that some members of this crowd may very well be seeing they may very well be seeing the beginning or feeling that effectual calling that the Holy Spirit does. It may very well be that some even are feeling a sorrow and a guilt that can come with that when your regeneration of the heart begins. We're going to see later that there's three thousand people that become believers because of this message. And yet, even though with all this convincing evidence, all this convincing discussion, there's still the scoffers that are there. There's still people in their depraved state of mind. There's still people there who hate Christ and who will not receive the gospel. Even though the information given was more than enough, so you may ask yourself, how can this be? John chapter 15 covers this at great length. Christ says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than its master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do, for, do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Christ is talking about the Pharisees here. The Pharisees do not know the Father. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, 
They would not have sin, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But this all happened to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now this is a lot to cover in just one verse. To simply state that Peter in his sermon emphasizes that God attested Jesus, performed all these miracles through him and as proof of his being the Messiah. And Peter now continues his sermon in verse 23 discussing the Messiahship of Christ even further. And it reads, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. So it starts out with this man. And we know that's Jesus, the Nazarene. And Peter now attributes Jesus being delivered over into the hands of the Jews because this was God's predetermined plan and held in the foreknowledge of God. The expression predetermined plan denotes a plan that has been determined, established, of course, but it means much more. The plan contained every detail along the way. John chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that Jesus created everything. He even created the tree that they made the cross out of. He put the iron ore deposits in the ground that the spikes that held him to that tree were made out of. He knew the name of the person that dug that iron ore up. He knew the name of the person that swung the hammer. He knew the names of the Roman soldiers who lifted the cross. All of this was known before the foundation of, war, of the world is predetermined. The author of this predetermined plan is God himself. Peter removes any doubt that the handing Jesus over to the Jews was not of haste or not a rash train of thought. It was a formulated plan. This plan has a long-term intention to save lost people of the world. That's why Christ died on that cross. Peter then adds the word foreknowledge, which is explaining the difference can be difficult, but if you think of foreknowledge, think about the attributes of God in uh, his omniscience. His all-knowing. Not just all-doing, not just sovereign, but he's omniscient. And his plan is fully known to God from the beginning of time. This whole plan is known from the beginning of time. 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, and I could easily go to Ephesians 1, Romans 9, and, and we could talk, we've already talked about election and predestination and some of those things, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time there, but there's tension in this that I'm going to get to in just a minute that I want you to think about before I get there. We have the sovereign God's plan to every detail and we have the responsibility of man. How did those go together? Jackie and I have had this conversation a number of times. And it's really almost funny because, you know, I stood at the closet and I picked this shirt out intentionally. I didn't go in looking for it, but I went through them and I said, okay, I'm going to wear this one. And I put it on and I came to church. 
And when you really boil it down to it and you think about it, God knew I was going to wear this shirt before he created the earth. And if he is all-knowing, he's perfect in every way, he's immutable, never change, not going to change his mind, can't be wrong, and he knew I was going to wear this shirt. So did I really have a choice? Think on that. Just ponder on that for a few minutes. I don't, I'm not going to sit here and act like I know the answer to that question, but I'm going to offer you a little different way to look at it, okay? So 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. I mean, you can't get much more being chosen than that. And this is just a greeting. This is a, the first two verses in this first Peter, that chapter 1. So Peter uses this verbiage concerning predetermination and foreknowledge repeatedly throughout his writings and teachings. In support of this doctrine, the Westminster Confession of State reads this. And I know we don't adhere to all of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but there are some good stuff in it. God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. End of quote. Whatsoever comes to pass. When God brings his will to pass, he often works in and through the real decisions of people. Genesis 50, we have the story of Joseph. And he, and he tells his brother, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God used it for good. God used it for good. You chose evil. God used it for good. Remember, God's sovereignty, predetermined plan, responsibility of man. And this verse, as most of y'all realize, this is the story of Joseph. Uh, difficult for us to realize that God's greatness and majesty, his majesty of his sovereignty, can bring goodness to pass even through the most vile and wretched of sins. So by sending the message of Jesus' crucifixion as being predetermined and the foreknowledge of God, Peter is addressing some questions that would come to the mind of many people in the street, especially those who reject Christ. Some of these questions would sound like, well, if Jesus was the Messiah, why did he allow himself to be a victim or even be found guilty? Why did he even allow himself to be crucified? Why didn't he just use his power and come down off the cross or bend the nails before they went through his flesh? And you'll hear similar questions today if you're witnessing to unbelievers, people who are truly in rejection. So let's get back to this tension. There is a tension that exists between God's predetermined plan in the death of his son and man being responsible for doing the deed. Because weren't they just carrying out God's plan? How can we hold them accountable for that? 
So God handed Jesus over to the Jews who put him to death. And they did this via Roman soldiers and nailed him to a cross. Both parties, the Jews and the Romans, the soldiers and the government of Rome, are all guilty of the murder of Jesus. These Jews intended to kill Jesus. They had plotted to kill Jesus many times before this. We've seen this on a number of occasions. However, in the process, they did carry out his predetermined plan. And the point to remember here is they didn't kill Jesus because it was God's plan necessarily. From their perspective, they murdered Jesus because they were murderers. They murdered him because they hated him. Matthew 5, 21 and 22 tells us they were murderers long before the first spike was driven through his hands. Because it said, you've heard the ancients were told, you shall not murder and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you, and this is Christ's words, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, everyone who has hatred in his heart, shall be guilty before that court. They were guilty of murder before they, once they had this, they were going to follow through with this plan and they had that much hatred to pick up those hammers and to do this thing. They were guilty of murder right then. When they truly harbored this hatred in their hearts, when that guilt of murder was confirmed, it's at that point that they were turned over to the reprobate minds. We read about this in Romans. And they were allowed to do their will, allowed it to be fulfilled in the murder of our Christ. They did it because they hated him. And this no way negates the plan of God or his foreknowledge. You see, God used evil men who hated Christ to accomplish his purpose, yet he never violated their will. He never got in the way of their intentions And he never removed their culpability for doing so. Men are not responsible for God's plans. They're responsible for their sins. And and one thing, and and I'm going to try this, and Josh, you and I talked about it a little bit. When you try to look at these two towers, you've got God's sovereignty and you've got responsibility of man, and you try to look at those at the same time, you're going to get nothing but a blurred picture. Our mind does not work that way. I have to wear glasses so that I can see to read any of this. It's a size 16 font, and I cannot read it without my glasses. I have to have help. So use your imagination, if you will, and imagine he had a pair of glasses. And one lens, when you look through it, you see God's perspective. You're looking at it from God's point of view. In the other lens, you're looking at it from man's point of view. If you put them both on, you're going to get a blurry scene. But if you cover one eye and you only look at it from God's point of view, and you have these tensions that arise in the scripture, you can see very clearly God at work. You can see very clearly what a plan looks like. You know what his intentions are. When you cover that that eye up and you look at it just from man's perspective, you totally see that sinful nature depraved nature, that inner being of the old man that's alive in there. And you 
you can clearly see it. So I would encourage you, when you run into these, and this is not the only one, when you study your word, you're going to run into these points of tension. Look at them twice. Don't try to look at it once and understand it. We're not built that way. You've got to look at it from God's point of view. This is what his word says. This is what he did. And then you've got to look at it from man's point of view. It'll give you a much clearer view of what's going on. I know that doesn't answer the question you may have wanted it answered. But the secret things still belong to God. And we only have those things that are revealed to us. We'll move on. Deniers of the doctrine of grace or election or this word predetermination, they readily accept pieces of scripture such as this. Yep, it was God's plan all along. He, it was God did it. Yep, God chose the Israelites. They're his chosen people. Oh, yes, he chose Abraham. He chose David, even though he was the youngest. God chose him chose Joseph you see what he did there but when it comes to God's choosing the saved oh no 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 don't you step on my free will you can't live in both lanes it's a blurred picture God is either sovereign or he's not I choose sovereignty Let's see if I can find out where I'm at. I got off track. Sorry. So I'm going to move on a little further into verse 23. Uh, Peter uses a personal pronoun here, you. And it assigns responsibility to the people in the crowd when he uses this word. John Calvin teaches that whether, whether they shouted crucify him or they remain silent, they're guilty. They did nothing to defend him. They were there. They screamed, crucify him. And I didn't scream it. Did you try to stop it? Were you a part of it? And it's really interesting to me that those people who shouted, crucify him, were very likely the same ones who just a few days before that, before they shouted, crucify him, were waving palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. We were likely the same ones greeting him at his triumphal entry. How quickly we change our mind. How quickly when we don't get what we want, we change our mind. Peter drives the responsibility of man in Christ's death, not for debate and speculation, but for conviction that would lead to repentance. The last part of this verse that may need some clarity here. It's where it talks about lawless men. And I think you all probably realize that he's talking about the Romans, the Roman government, the Roman soldiers. Because they didn't have the law. The Jews had the law. So he refers to them as lawless men. But this is not the end. You see, in many ways, the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, this is like a beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has been on the earth for three and a half years. He's still in the ministry today, 2,000 years later. Verse 24 offers the next phrase in Christ's ministry. 
And it reads, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. God raised him up again clearly refers to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does the resurrection do for us? I mean, we know he had to be raised, but what does that do for us? Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let's look starting at verse 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. And after I read this, keep your finger, mark that page, because I'm going to come back to this chapter in a few minutes. It says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. So we can now live in confidence that as believers, we will be raised according to the same fashion that Christ was raised. The resurrection of Christ was part of God's predetermined plan as much as the crucifixion was. Our resurrection as believers is a part of that same plan. He is why we are why he died. It's part of that same plan. So how can you choose to believe this part and not this other part? I just really have some struggles there. Going to move on, sorry. MacArthur states that without the resurrection, and bear with me as I go through this, because when we're talking about Christ, some of this sounds a little painful, but he's saying that without the resurrection, Christ's death becomes a heroic death of a noble martyr, or becomes a pathetic death of a madman, or it was the execution of a fraud without the resurrection. The resurrection is that important. It's part of the proof that he's the Messiah. Three points concerning Jesus' resurrection and And this comes from MacArthur as well. And uh, I'll admit up front, there's probably more stuff from his commentary on Acts in this particular teaching than any other uh, commentary that I used. I went through about seven, but I ended up here. So I'm I'm quoting what I'm directly writing down. Three points concerning Jesus' resurrection without a doubt the deity of Jesus is proven and it establishes his messianic credentials. It's a guarantee of the believer's resurrection into glory and it's the crowning proof that God the Father accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's three points that Jesus' resurrection did. Now it's my own view and I think it's biblical but we talk about the believers being resurrected and having an immortal body but won't the unbelievers have an immortal body of some type as well? Are they not going to endure eternity in torment in a place called hell? They're going to have to have something besides this to do that.
And one last point on the resurrection, Jesus was delivered by the Jews to the Romans and condemned by an earthly court and killed. But the verdict of the earthly court was overturned. It was trumped by the heavenly court when our judge in heaven responded to the greatest injustice in the history of the world by raising Jesus from the dead. Killed the most innocent man that ever lived. Lived a perfect life, the only one to ever fulfill the law that ever will fulfill the law. So we go on just a little further in this verse and we see the word agony. And when you go back to the origins of this word, you see it described as birth pangs. And, and I will never know what birth pangs feel like. I was in the room when Jackie gave birth to two of our kids. And I've got some idea of being able to sympathize with what that feels like. But I have no idea. It's agony. It hurts. The use of birth pains here when associated with the death of Christ may appear to be in place, but somewhat out of place. Because when we think about the death of Christ, we have to think about his resurrection. And this is the new birth of sorts. Born with a glorified body. Born with a new destination. Born with a sinless nature instead of a sinful one. Jesus' resurrection defeated death. No longer, we, we no longer have to fear death's sting. Sinless Jesus who took upon himself the sins of the world has removed the sting of death when he died on the cross. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, later in that chapter, verses 55 to 56, but when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come the word that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Sting. Peter has presented to the Jews that the long-awaited Messiah of Israel has come in the person of Jesus the Nazarene. This announcement must have shocked all the crowd and even outraged some of the rejectors that were there. However, I think we're going to see in future teachings that many will believe mentioned that earlier we must remember that less than two months before this Jesus was executed for claiming to be the Messiah they called it blasphemy but he wasn't lying he wasn't Messiah and now the believers from the upper room are making the same claim that he made before his death and I can only imagine that this must have been viewed by the Jewish leaders as being a mark for execution on Peter. was for Christ. But this three-time denier of Christ is now showing his boldness in the belief of Christ. He's now showing the strength that he's been given through the Holy Spirit, and he's willing to die for the cause of Christ who died for Peter. And the very fact that salvation is now being offered to the ones who rejected him and even murdered him, that same salvation that you and I possessed is being offered to them in the streets of Jerusalem when Peter's preaching this.
clear testimony to God's grace. If that's not grace, nothing is. The ones who killed his son are hearing the gospel. In layman's terms, Peter's saying, you're asking what this is, and I can only explain it to you in terms of a person called Jesus the Nazarene. And I'm quoting this from a theologian. I'm, I'm going to say that on this one. I'm 95% sure it came from Martin Lloyd-Jones. In layman's terms, Peter is saying, you're asking what this is, and I can only explain it to you in terms of a person called Jesus the Nazarene. He is the sole explanation. If you wanted to know what happened to us, if you want to understand this amazing phenomenon, you have to look to this person, Jesus the Nazarene. So Peter tells them all about his birth, life, his teaching, but especially he told them about his death, resurrection, and ascension. Peter's argument is that these events on the day of Pentecost would not have happened were it not for him. And we find that then the resurrection of Christ the grave could not hold him. Jesus cannot be held in the grave because he is the true king. He's the promised seed of David. And this is where we will pick up next week with Peter using David's words concerning Jesus the Nazarene. I thank everyone for making time to be here this evening. And, and I mentioned earlier as I look at this congregation, I realize that, that I can't look into your hearts. But I would like for you to take an opportunity to just give consideration to your relationship with Christ, with your union with Christ. And if you have any questions around salvation, anything at all, please, Josh, myself, any of the deacons, we, we would love to talk to you. We would love to have that conversation. Let's pray. Father, I know that your word will not return void, and I pray that you will use what has been taught tonight to further your kingdom. Help us, Lord. Help us to be the example you want us to be. Thank you for being our Heavenly Father. And I pray if anyone here tonight doesn't know you, Lord, that you will use your Holy Spirit to remove the stony heart and to give them a heart of flesh, one that can receive you. Father, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. All God's children said, amen.